It's good to be back, having been on the mission field for a little while, for a week or two, and uh, thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, good to be back and plunging back into this series, Issues and Inspiration, as we deal with the topic of understanding and ministering to the LGBTQ community this morning. And I would invite you to find Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes, for starters, this morning. Many years ago, I saw a, a, a comic this depiction of a little girl, a little three-year-old that was playing outside of the, just outside of the garage where her daddy was changing the oil in his car. And as he was getting out of the car, he spilled the, uh, he spilled the oil, that black oil onto the concrete and uh, into the sun. And you've seen an oil slick like this, haven't you? Instinctively, she said, Daddy, somebody broke the rainbow. Well, I'm more than familiar that the rainbow represents gay pride. But the truth is, if every one of us were rainbows, we would all be broken. Every one of us are imperfect, messed up, sinful, and that's all of us, including me. The wisest man to ever live concluded in his book, his expose on life, where he said there's nothing new under the sun, that you could, you could, you could uh, substitute these words, uh, life apart from God. Living life apart from God is vanity, it's emptiness. And Solomon, if you've read that and studied Ecclesiastes, he tries it all, trying to live life under the sun, apart from God, and he's completely frustrated. He gets disillusioned even, seeing all of the questions that he can't get answered, even with all of his wisdom and this and that. And he concludes his letter with these words. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, that's like a cattle prod, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, and then watch this, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is weariness to the flesh. In my first wife's very last journal entry that we discovered days after her untimely death, we saw that she was writing about she had just read from Matthew 14 and the death of John the Baptist by beheading. If you're familiar with that story, the daughter of Herodias had danced this voluptuous dance in front of the king. The king was taken up in it and basically offered her whatever. And she, her mother said, get the head of John. And he did, offed the head of John the Baptist. My wife wrote in her journal that this was such a senseless death, Lord. Why would you allow the death of John the Baptist? I mean, I don't even see anything good coming out. I don't even see anything in your sovereign plan coming out of this deal. So you could see clearly she was scratching her head and wrestling in her soul about why John died, and in such a way, ignominious way. And she's just struggling with the God in his ways. Life presents a lot of things that don't seem to make sense. Can I get an amen from that? 
like the struggles of those with same-sex attraction and what they experience. Why would God, one, one individual I've been meeting with over the past couple of months, one individual asked me this question, why would God create people like me if he loves me so much and it's wrong? And be careful with your glib, snappy answers. They don't do any good anyway to anybody. My wife's conclusion to her own muddle, I think, is something we can take a hold of. In fact, it would become an anchor to our family. Her conclusion became an anchor to our family soon thereafter. She wrote these words after, you know, dealing with the quandary. All God's ways are perfect. I must be content with that. That certainly agrees with the psalmist who said, as for God, his way is perfect. So God's ways are perfect, but being willing to be content with his ways when they're perplexing is another thing altogether. And I think, I think my first wife was on to something, something that we can embrace in our muddles. Okay, so God is perfect and so are his ways, but I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. The world is imperfect, right? So how does imperfect me, how does imperfect you in an imperfect world find contentment? The results of living in a sin-cursed world with sin-cursed people is not predictable. Would you agree? I have what I call the cake box theory that I came up with a number of years ago. The cake box theory basically says uh, you are, when you're raising your family, uh, some of you raise your family uh, the way someone bakes a cake. You, you go to the cupboard, you pull the box out, you turn it around, you see the recipe, and you go by the recipe. You grease the pan, you get out the eggs and the flour and the mix, and you do it all together. You set the oven at 350, you pop that thing in the oven, and it's going to be a cake every time. And that's the way sometimes we raise our families. We think we got the recipe down, we do it all, we Christianize them, we bring them to church, we teach them the truth, we father them right, we mother them right, we pastor them right, we church them right, and they don't turn out right. And we get disillusioned. I know this pain. The answer is Faith. I love what Eugene Peterson said when he said, faith invades our muddle. It doesn't eliminate it. That's worth memorizing. God offers to take away not the muddle harassing you, but the sin holding you. The issue we're tackling is as old as the early chapters of Genesis and as contemporary as last month's Gay Pride Month here and really around the world as well. Acceptance of the practicing gay community is almost universal today, isn't it? Gates in society yesterday have been pretty much all taken down. In fact, the only gate remaining is in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, people-loving churches except that the whole people-loving thing isn't always what they experience. In many cases, because they have not sensed love in God's church, they have sought to find it elsewhere. 
I know this because I've spent a lot of time with individuals struggling with same-sex attraction. The LGBTQ community is exactly that. It is a community. I thought of the little ditty, uh, the words, the lyrics of the, of the song of, uh, for Cheers, you know, the, the comedy. You know, the, remember the comedy, Cheers? Yeah, you remember it. Stop pretending. <laughs> I remember hearing it for the first time after watching the news. It popped up, and I, I heard the words, and I jumped up, and I said, Honey, that, that's talking about the church there. It goes, Sometimes you got to go where everybody knows your name, where they're always glad you came. You got to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You got to go where everybody knows your name. That's community. And the LGBTQ community is doing what every single one of us long for, desire, were created for, namely community. And they probably teach us, in some ways, how to do it better. Many, not all, in the same sex-attracted world, wish the church would affirm not only their struggle, but the practice of homosexuality. So I want to propose today at Sailorville Church that we both affirm and embrace the struggles of those among us with same-sex attraction. We cannot, and we will not affirm anyone's practice of sexual sin, heterosexual or homosexual, both are sin. The practice of either is sinful. The gate will remain up for those who choose to openly reject the revelation of God found in the word of God. But not for any who come struggling and, yes, even practicing, who long to talk, who long to be heard, who long to be understood because they are so grossly misunderstood, who long to have a shoulder to lean on and maybe cry on in their efforts to find out what the revelation of God has to say. We will not close our hearts to them. And I say this because, to my own shame, I only reached out and started to do this a few months ago, and up until then I would tell you that I had a heart for the lost and those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. I have been convicted, I have been enlightened, I have repented, I have had my eyes open, I have had blind spots revealed to me I never knew were there. That is the very def definition of a blind spot, after all. Solomon said to his son, and we just read it, be, be careful about going beyond what the preacher says, those wise words. And the Apostle Paul would agree with him. He says, do not go beyond what is written. Have you ever read that? In other words, well, science, technology, the medical world, genetics, psychological and sociological studies abound, and we do, they do lend insight into the problem, the struggles of the LGBTQ, same-sex attraction community. In the end, the Bible will have the final say. Again, 
in that passage of Scripture in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says something interesting. He says, of the making of many books, there is no end. And the much devotion, our study of them, is weariness of the flesh. And that is so true with this particular area. There are more books, more articles, more blogs, more YouTubes, more videos on the church and the LGBTQ community than you can possibly count. But I love how Solomon concluded his story. He said, the end of the matter, all that is heard, this is the sum of it all, he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Did you catch that? Fear God. Get a great, grandiose picture of God, his greatness, his power, his authority, his sovereignty, and his compassion, his goodness, and his love. God knows your struggle. You are all, we are all broken rainbows. Can I get an amen? We are all broken rainbows, and God knows your struggles. And if you are struggling with same-sex attraction, God knows this. And he still loves you. It's so very, very important for us to gather this in, drink this in, because God knows our struggle, and his church needs to care. And yes, it needs to care more than it has. I've had the privilege, as I said, to sit down with many individuals struggling with same-sex attraction. And in varying degrees, to those who just are righteous, but they struggle in the day-to-day battle, others who are conflicted one way or another, and and those who are all in and have bought in and embraced the homosexual agenda and lifestyle. When homosexuals tell, tell us, I've always been gay, I've got news for you. They mean it. That is their experience, at least of many. Their lot in life is not a choice, not to them anyway. It is nature. It's in their DNA. And I get it. But remember, the rainbow is broken. Your rainbow is broken. When sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so sin passed upon all men, for all sin, all sinned in Adam. Right down to our DNA, we are busted people. And that takes a different way of looking for all of us. Some have been deeply hurt through physical and sexual abuse. And we'll talk about abuse in the weeks to come. Others were shut down by parents before they were shut out of the church. And by the way, this is where we must differentiate between homosexual desire and homosexual practice. The chasm could not be wider. You say, well, I see a connection between... Of course there's connection, but not necessarily. The one doesn't always lead to the other. 
Now, the practice of sexual behavior of any kind, homosexual or heterosexual, outside of the parameters of the word of God and the bonds of marriage is sin. And here's a short list of biblical references on heterosexual and homosexual prohibitions and warnings. Don't worry, you're not going to be able to get, have the time to write them all out. We'll send those, these things out to you or pop them up again later. Suffice it to say that all of those references, and that's not exhaustive, but it will suffice. Each reference is clear and unequivocal on God's view of the practice of sexual sin. <clears throat> and in those references are words like abomination and vile affections and dishonoring your body and shameful, wicked, unseemly, filthy, reprobate, and against nature. All in connection with the practice of sexual sin. And I have repeatedly used the word practice throughout because not only does the Bible do so, this adjective, but because it differentiates between desire and practice. God condemns not the struggle. He condemns the practice. And here's how I'm defining that. Practicing sexual sin means either mentally or physically acting upon that person or thing by which I am tempted. That said, I want to bring your attention for the balance of our time to a very familiar passage in John chapter 8. In fact, in here are two of the most well-known lines in the Bible, known both inside and outside the church. In fact, those outsiders love to use these lines, and in some cases, justifiably so. But here's the story in John chapter 8. Jesus has gone up on the Mount of Olives. It's early in the morning, and he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Remember the story now? And placing her in the midst, he, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Wouldn't you like to know what he was writing? It's the only time in the Bible ever recorded where Jesus is writing anything. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Interesting. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. To those of you 
who struggle with sexual identity or have embraced the lifestyle of homosexuality and or the LGBTQ movement. You're looking at the first point. God does not condemn your struggle, neither will Sailorville Church. One of the individuals I met with told the story that when he was reaching his adolescence, he was seriously struggling with same-sex attraction. And uh, he said to me that in his church, there was a series of messages the pastor was preaching. This is a Bible-believing local church that we need to be transparent. We need to be open. We need to share our struggles, our sins with one another. And sure enough, out of the closet they came. Not those struggling with same-sex attraction, but those struggling with pornography, those struggling with anger, those struggling with alcohol, those struggling with sexual temptation. All of them were applauded as something to share, something to be able to, you know, lay this down, this burden down, so others can pick it up and help you walk through it. He looked at this as his opportunity to seize. And so at 16 years of, of age, he said, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. And he was met with the leadership of the church with a, we can't talk about that. The man said to me, as he sat in my office, he said, um, that hurt. You think? Can you say hypocrisy? We can't tell people we are a transparent church, open to the struggles of life with one exception. Sailorville Church must and will be a place for those with same-sex attraction to find genuine love, genuine compassion, genuine accountability without the fear of being bullied or judged. God does not condemn your struggle, and neither will we. Secondly, God does not condemn your questions and doubts, and neither will Sailorville Church. I can still remember, like it was yesterday, standing in the threshold of my son's uh, bedroom. He was sitting down across me. He just, he'd been caught smoking reefer with some of his friends. So I said to him, and his last service, I almost said his name. I said, you know what you believe. You know you shouldn't be doing this. I'll never forget it. He looked right at me, and he said, Dad, I have no idea what I believe. And I was so, so shocked by his response. You could have knocked me over with a feather. But I was grateful to God for his Holy Spirit who spoke to me and spoke to my heart as I, as I leaned into the threshold of his bedroom. And God said, embrace his doubt. Embrace his questions. Let him work through this. And we did. And God helped him to work through that. I wish I could say, that's the way it always worked with all my kids. How can we expect our children to never question who they are when the whole world is questioning who they are? You say, well, not my kid. He'll never doubt or be confused. Oh, quit being so smug. <laughs> what arrogance. But listen, 
The Bible can handle our questions. The Bible can handle our doubts. And so must God's church, and so this church will. Thirdly, God does not condemn you. Listen now. God does not condemn you who are conflicted, and neither will Sailorville Church. I told you, they weren't all wins for me. I'll never forget driving in the car one day with my son, who was in seventh grade at the time. He said, Dad, he goes, can I talk to you about a girl? I said, sure. What's her name? He told me her name. He goes, I, I kind of like her. And so I said, well, is she a Christian? He goes, no, I don't think so. I said, son, the Bible calls that an unequal yoke. You can't, you can't, even, you can't even entertain this. If you do, it'll be the next thing you know you're going to be doing something. You can't, you can't go. You have to cut this off. And I watched, I watched myself gut his spirit right there in the moment. He just went flush. His head went down. And he never spoke to me about his physical affections again for the next several years. God does not condemn our conflictions, and neither should we. As I have met with several individuals over the past few months, God has enlarged my heart, and he has opened my eyes, and he's cleared up those blind spots I alluded to. And I had a series of questions to give them, and to their credit, not one of those individuals I met with dodged any of the questions. I gave him the opportunity. I said, if any of these things are uncomfortable, just say, I opt out. I just let's circumvent it. We'll go to the next one. Not one of them did they dodge. Not one. I was so impressed. Here's one of the questions. How do you reconcile your faith and sexual identity, I asked. Can you be a practicing homosexual and a Christ follower? With their permission, here's what one of them said to me. And this is exactly how they put it. I still think I can have faith in Christ and practice a homosexual life, but sin separates, so I guess I'm contradicting. It puts up a wall. Maybe uh, I'm conflicted. If I'm not conflicted, I've made up my mind. I don't mind being conflicted because that tells me I haven't given up on myself and God hasn't given up with me. Do you condemn a person like that? Heck no. Never. They're in the fight of their lives. This is our opportunity to give them that shoulder to lean on, to cry on, to struggle through. We have to show them the love of Jesus that sent them running somewhere else to find it or to find something. The Bible doesn't condemn you who are conflicted. And neither will we. God help us. Fourthly, the Bible does not condemn your desire for love and sexual fulfillment. And neither will Sailorville Church. Sex is good and beautiful. Thank you. God invented it. C.S. Lewis wrote, Badness is only spoiled goodness. 
And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. The spoiler, we know, is sin. Sin came into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all sinned in Adam. The entrance of sin was the spoiler. And Rosaria Butterfield, famously now known as this flaming liberal, living with another woman, totally committed to the lesbian, homosexual, lesbian lifestyle, interviewed an older pastor who loved her so compassionately she came to Christ. She turned to Jesus. Her life was changed. She's now married. She's got a family. And she says, original sin is the great leveler. Remember, the rainbow is broken. All of our rainbows are broken. God created us as sexual beings, and if you're asexual, you're a rare person indeed. They, they exist. That's why I think the gift of celibacy is out there, but a rare person indeed. Jay Stringer, in his book, Unwanted, makes the case, now watch this, he makes the case that we've missed the mark in our efforts to prevent loved ones from caving into their sexual desires and fantasies by focusing in on the perversions rather than on the glory of God and the beauty of sex. A great point indeed. And not exalting in the fact that God has created us as sexual beings. Here's what he says. The reality that more than half of our faith leaders and the great majority of Christians view pornography should, should indicate that our strategies have proven ineffective Efforts to eliminate lust will set us up to manage our sexual lives with a tourniquet. Those are strong words. And then this. Evil hates the beauty of sex. And because it cannot abolish its existence, it works to corrupt its essence. Sex between a man and a woman is natural. It's not always right, but it is natural. Sex between two people of the same gender is unnatural, and the Bible says as much in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Evil's corruption that Stringer refers to in the LGBTQ community has been to take what is unnatural, watch this, and make it seem natural. Those of you struggling with same-sex attraction, your longing for sexual love and fulfillment is not to be condemned. But remember, the rainbow is broken. Remember that, just like the rest of us. Fifth, God condemns the practice of homosexuality, so will Sailorville Church. When Jesus said to the, those now famous words to that woman, you know, go and sin no more, right? By doing so, he wasn't poo-pooing sin. He calls it what it is, sin. Now, he did demonstrate love and compassion and even protection of that woman. Those guys were just accusing, apparently, holding rocks. But he did anticipate a change in her, did he not? 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Look at this. Here's what he says. Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greet the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty strong list there, including those practicing homosexuality. But then these powerful and insightful words which follow, and such were some of you. Have you ever read that? This, these were the Corinthians. Yes, the Corinthians were caught up in all kinds of things like thievery and drunkenness, and yes, homosexuality. He goes, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. When God got a hold of my heart, he changed my practice of immorality. I was a practicingly, I was a practicing immoral man. Now, I was still tempted then, and I'm still tempted today. Yes, I'm still tempted to sin. I'm still tempted to lust. And when the temptation comes on, the fight is on. But I have changed my practice. I'm now in a righteous fight for holiness. Before Christ, I worked to hide my sin. Hide, I loved my sin. But God changed my loves. John writes, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. That's why I love two of my friends that, I've, that have become dear to me, that I've met with, who are genuinely, and, uh, ev- and it's, the evidence is all there, the seed of God is in them, but they have struggled for many years with same-sex attraction. They still struggle. Every single day they struggle, but it's a righteous struggle, and they are more than conquerors through him who loved them. And it, it makes my heart soar with love and joy for them in their righteous fight that they're having. Lastly, God is calling you, you broken rainbows. God is calling you to drink from his well, and we're serving that drink here at Sarahville Church. Remember in the, when Jesus met with another woman, the woman at the well? I love this line. He said to that woman, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, right? Just look at that. Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. God knows you're thirsty. He created that thirst in you. But many of you have settled for an imitation quencher. It is a well that cannot and will not quench your deepest desire. And when Jesus dealt with the other woman, the woman caught in adultery, remember he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He accepted her before any change took place. In fact, the story drops off. We don't know what happened, but we expect change took place. It will take place in your life as well. And listen carefully to these words. It won't take place by force but by flow. Not by force, but by flow. Not by pressure upon you, but by pleasure within you. 
That's what God does when he changes our hearts. So Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will, will give to him, watch this, will become in him. I love that. Will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Want a drink? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for everyone who had come and listened to the word of God and the compassion of Christ. Lord, we have a Savior who, ironically, never married who was tempted in all points like us, but never sinned. He's more. He's more than an example, however. He is our Savior and our Lord, and he offers to us water that will quench our deepest desire. I pray for those, Father, who are here in this room, who are listening online, who will listen later on, who have been drinking imitation quenchers. And they know that this is not quenching their thirst. That only Jesus can do that. The one who loved them. The one who died for them. The one who rose again for them. And dear God, I pray that you would impress upon their heart and people's hearts in this room right now the need to drink from the well of Christ, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. God, I pray that this church would be a church where those with same-sex attraction will be allowed to struggle. And we will come alongside of them without judging or bullying or the like in our efforts to make Jesus Christ known and to create a community that will cause people to say, why should I look elsewhere? For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand.